Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans chapter 12. We'll look at the first two verses in uh, chapter 12 of Romans this morning. Today, if you didn't know, is the fourth Sunday in Lent in the church calendar, uh, which Lent is a season that's shaped by Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness and Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It's a season of fasting. It's a season of literal and figurative fasting. Um, it's a season where the church wonder, wanders and waits. Uh, in particular, we wait for resurrection. We wait for Jesus. We wait for this amazing feast when he will come and make all things right. Today, as I mentioned earlier, is also the one-year mark since our cozy world was turned into a disoriented wilderness by God. Um, And so it feels like we're in still last year's Lent. And in many ways, uh, that is true. But Lent also means lengthening. This is what the word actually comes from, lengthening. Because around this time of the year, the days start to lengthen. Around this time, hopes start to rise. This is why we are casting vision as a church. We are imagining our church in 10 years' time, and we're sharing seven key distinctives about this Hope Church in 10 years, Hope 2031. And first, as we said the first couple weeks, we think you would notice an emphasis on vocation, and that was the past few weeks. Now we're talking about what we're calling holistic Christian Maturity. Now, there's nothing unique about a church pursuing maturity, so there's nothing distinctive about that. But I think we too often, um, we have a lopsided view of maturity in the church. Maturity is, biblically understood, a stool with three legs, head, heart, and hands. In most churches, most communities uh, of Jesus are good at one of those, perhaps two, if you're lucky. Um, uh, and so what they do typically is they pursue maturity in those strengths. In our tradition, as I shared last week, we are good. We're really good at pursuing maturity in our thinking, what has been called orthodoxy, having right thoughts about God and about church and about our posture as, as Christians in the world and so on. But that means we can be weak on things like emotional maturity and our practices, which have been called orthopraxy and orthopathy, right practices and right emotions. And so we want to be a church that combines these three things really well. We think that is a distinctive. We think that will indeed set us apart as a church. We are pursuing holistic maturity, not just maturity in what we're good at. Last week we talked about emotional maturity and we noticed that in Scripture there's no priority of the intellect over the emotions. 
In other words, our intellect and our emotional life are equally fallen, broken by sin. Our intellect and our emotions are equally redeemed by Jesus. And therefore, God wants our intellect and our emotions in our relationship to him. He wants them both. And he wants them both in our relationship to his his people. Today, we're going to talk about the other stool leg. Our practices. Head, heart, and hands. Our practices. And to do this, I want to focus particularly this morning on habits. Habits are another way of saying practices or ingrained practices. Now, I think we're hesitant to talk about habits because we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in God's grace. And we might think that paying attention to habits in the Christian life somehow will contradict grace or invalidate the Spirit's sort of work in our life. Uh, But like most things, it's both. God's grace and God the Holy Spirit are opposed to earning but not effort. Grace is opposed to merit, but is it opposed to habit? Well, let's talk about it, but first let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening in the Holy Spirit? Would you indeed empower the word that you superintended and breathed out for us so that we could become more and more mature? Not to sit on our hands as mature people, uh, redeemed by you and and, uh, living resurrection life uh, so that we could pat ourselves on the back, but indeed so that we could bless others with the blessings that you've given us, so that we could love others well, and that we could be on your mission to advance the good news of Jesus into this world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So a couple summers ago, I experienced the mountains for the first time, not looking at them. I've done that before, not driving through them. I've certainly done that before, but backpacking through them. And uh, something that I learned is that if you go high enough into the mountains, you start to hit snow, even if it's the middle of the summer. This was shocking to me. It's actually quite beautiful as you get up there. But what it does is it makes navigation tricky uh, because the official trails that have been laid out for you are now covered in a snow field, under a snow field. And so for the most part, once you hit a certain elevation, you are following the boot trails of the person before you. And the person before you is following the boot trails of the person before them. And the person before them is following the boot trails of the person before them. And for the most part, this is a reliable guide as you are backpacking. There are literally ruts in the deep snow that keep everyone safe and keep everyone going where they need to go. But sometimes these ruts can have the total opposite effect. They can be absolutely dangerous. In one instance, we were climbing a steep mountain pass, and the switchback trails that would usually get you gradually up and then over this pass were completely covered by a giant snowfield, deep massive snowfield. And usually what you would do is you, as I said, you would hike up and down these switchback trails, but the switchbacks were covered by snow. And so instead what we had was you had a straight line boot trail up and a straight line boot trail down. Now it was going at an angle, of course, but it was just a straight line. And that's fine in theory, 
But the only problem was this rut took you right over some dangerous boulders at one point, which I learned warm up when exposed to the sun and retain the heat that it, that it has from the sun, which creates what mountaineers call moats or these sort of super thin boundary areas, these super thin areas that look like deep, hard snow, but actually if you step on them, you could fall through. And that's super dangerous. And I was super uh, scared about that. And this to me, this image of a well-worn, deep rut that often brings safety, but sometimes brings danger, is to me a great picture of life in this broken world. Because it's as if snow has covered God's safe paths. And we're all asked to journey anyway in this world. And so what we do is we create and we follow deeply entrenched boot trails. And here's the kicker. These snow ruts, these boot trails can either be life-giving and safe or life-taking and dangerous. You see, the truth is, we are all in a rut. We are, by design, creatures of habit. There is no other way to live. Um, I'm really glad that there are Christians in the wild west of neuroscience uh, who are making these observations about ruts and about how uh, humans, just by design, uh, find themselves finding ruts, creating ruts, and deepening ruts, patterns, practices in their life. And I'm so glad that there are Christians in this world of research that are helping bring connections to what we're learning about the brain and what, we're, what we know already about Scripture. See, the brain apparently contains 100 billion neurons, And we're learning that these neurons that fire together, wire together. That's what they say in this science community. Neurons that fire together, wire together. This means that the brain, by God's own design, is full of ruts. It's full of snow boot trails. Pre-existing ruts that can deepen. Like when you practice a scale on a guitar or a violin, these, these ruts can deepen. Or some kind of movement, like if you're an athlete, by practicing it over and over and over again, these these sort of uh, ruts can deepen and this can be a good thing. You can even, we are learning, create brand new ruts. Maybe you've heard of the word neuroplasticity. This is a big word and and I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not going to pretend to be. But neuroplasticity means that our brains actually have the capacity of creating new neural pathways, new ruts which is an amazing reality. I witnessed this reality in a deeply personal way about 10 years ago. One of my sons experienced permanent brain damage in his birth. But the doctors didn't look at me and didn't look at my wife and say, sorry, what's done is done. They didn't. They said, you've got work to do. This little baby can develop new neural pathways that detour the tissue that's not working. And so we got to work as parents and we saw an amazing transformation. This is true of all of us. All of life, we are creating and deepening pathways. Pathways that lead to life or pathways to lead to danger. But either way, we are all in a rut. Do you see it? Sometimes we say, I just feel like I'm in a rut. What we mean by that is we're in a bad rut. It doesn't mean that we can get out of a rut and somehow leave a, live a rutless life. No, we're always going to be 
deepening grooves in our lives. We're always going to be living and creating ruts in our lives. The question isn't, are we living in a rut? The question is, are the ruts that we're creating and living in life-giving, God-honoring, or are they destructive and wrongful and harmful to ourselves, to our relationships, and our relationship to God? And that's what we know from science, okay? Uh, But this is an instance where science is actually catching up to the Bible. We've seen this story of ruts already. If you've been reading your Bible, uh, first of all, we see it in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament. And so just briefly in the Old Testament, uh, particularly Proverbs, we learn that much of life is determining which rut you're going to walk on and which rut you're going to deepen in your life. So Proverbs 4, for instance... You can turn there if you like or listen along. Proverbs 4 basically says there are two kinds of ruts. There's a rut of wisdom, which is chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. And then there is the rut of what we'll call wickedness, which is chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. And so just listen to chapter 4, verse 10 of Proverbs. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. So that word there in verse 10, path, comes from the Hebrew word magal. Okay, And magal was used in that time to describe cart tracks or wagon tracks. Um, Old Testament scholar Bruce Walk, he says, While the earth is soft, wagon wheels press the trails that others are obliged to follow after it dries and hardens. So there's this amazing visceral image of, of life as, as sort of living in grooves that are, are sort of preset for us that we can, that we can deepen and, and further entrench as we live, or we can choose to go into life-giving paths that, are, uh, that we can deepen and entrench in our lives. I'll call this the upright rut or the righteous rut, a pathway that brings life. And again, the rest of Proverbs 4 talks about the deadly ruts, ruts that diminish life and bring harm and destruction to our lives and to those around us. That's the Old Testament, just one example. The New Testament also talks about ruts. Uh, in the passage that we just uh, read, well, in the passage of, of, that you have open, Romans 12, Paul says this, and you can take a look now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, And sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And pay attention here in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and what is perfect. Okay, so this word here, this Greek word for conformed in verse 2, literally means to be formed on the model of, or as one translation puts it, squeezed into the world's mold. And that's exactly right. That means that if left to ourselves, like the image we have in Proverbs, we will get squeezed or we will get lined up into and lock into the world's ruts versus what Paul says is God's will. We'll call that the righteous ruts. The ruts that God would have us live into. We all live in ruts. That's what I want to say to you this morning. We all live and we all deepen ruts. 
The question is which ruts? Ruts that destroy or ruts that bring life? And then the question is, how can we cultivate the ruts that bring life? And to answer this, I want to look more closely at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I just read. Because in it, we see Paul comparing a life of worship, a life of worship to a life of conformity to the world. We have a contrast here. We have a contrast. What I will call worshipful ruts and worldly ruts. And I want to explore both briefly. So first, the worldly ruts. Uh, look at the, again at the beginning of verse 2, where Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world. I see two things here that are important to notice. Worldly ruts are our default, number one. Number two, they're deadening. So let's first talk about how they're our default. Uh, in the Greek, be conformed, as you see it here in the English translation, is in the passive voice. If you failed English, uh, or if you forget grammar like I, like I do, Passive voice simply means that uh, you're not the subject doing the action. So who is? Well, there are forces, there are things going on in this world that are conforming us into the mold of the world. This means left to ourselves, we will be conformed to the world by our sin, by our sin nature, by the sin systems that we live in, by the brokenness and the fallenness of this world, it just is going to happen. It's default. That's, this is called the, the fall. This is called original sin. These are things that will happen by default, this conformity to the world. We're either going to be conformed to the world or transformed uh, according to God's will, one or the other. And so worldly ruts are default. We need to understand that. Number two, we need to understand that worldly ruts are deadening inherently. We might think, who cares if my life is conformed to the world? I live in the world, after all. This is the world God made. So who cares if I'm conformed to the world? But we have to understand what Paul is saying here. In fact, our, our English translation, if you're using mine, uh, doesn't help us too much here because it says the world when the actual word that Paul uses is this age. This age, okay? And what, what Paul meant in Hebrew thought is that there are two ages. There's the present evil age, and there is the age to come. And the present evil age, uh, sometimes we call it the fallen world. Uh, this is well, the, the world that's fallen. It's east of Eden. It's characterized by addiction. It's characterized by injustice. And it's characterized by death, by death. And uh and, and there's just so much that's broken about the world that the Hebrew mind would say, this is the present evil age. And they would anticipate another age called the uh, age to come. And the age to come was when Messiah would come and make all things right and renew the whole cosmos and resurrection would happen. And so there's the age to come and there's the present evil age. And what Paul is saying here is that by default, we are born into this world uh, with a setting that wants to be conformed to the dying age, the age that Jesus came to end. And Paul is saying over and over again in this letter and in all his other letters, live the resurrection life. In other words, live in the age to come. It's here. It overlaps quite significantly with the, with the age, uh, the, the, the present evil age. And we're called to live and lean into the age of resurrection. Because Jesus is alive. And whenever we live conformity to the world, we are living in conformity to the dying order. And so worldly ruts 
they're deadening, and they're default. Which means a few things for us all. Number one, take stock of your ruts, of your habits, of the way that you spend your life, your days, uh, the grooves that you are deepening in your life, because there's no neutral ground. This is one thing we see in this passage right away. There's no neutral ground when it comes to our activities and to our habits. James K. Smith, a philosopher and a public theologian who actually spoke at uh, the Thompson Institute's inaugural uh, lectures, points out that our practices in life are either formative or deformative. There's no, like, whatevs in the middle. It's either formative or deformative. And Elizabeth, during her spiritual, uh, spiritual practices, spiritual formation practices, uh, helped me see that in my life. I think of this often with regard to my phone, to be quite honest. To my phone, yes, my smartphone, the thing I'm preaching into right now. Uh, I learned uh, this week that we touch our phones on average 2,617 times a day. Not a month, a day. I'll say that number again just to blow your mind. 2,617 times every day we touch our phone on average. On average. And those who are designing these phones and the apps that are inside of these phones are quite happy about these numbers, as you can imagine. They perfectly designed, uh, they purposefully designed the phone uh, for these kinds of numbers, and they only want the numbers to go up. Uh, one researcher points out that app designers utilize casino methods. Uh, casinos are amazing at digging ruts into our brains for repetitive behaviors, aren't they? Uh, AKA addiction. And and what they do is they create and deepen neural pathways through kind of go-to practices. And one of those is uh, on our phones, we see things like the drag to refresh button. That We can thank the casinos for that one. Uh, the, uh, the colors that we see on our phones, the bottomless scrolling, how there's no end to our scrolling. It just keeps on refreshing as we go and offering new and new and newer things. The lack of an on-off button is kind of similar to how when you walk into a casino, there's no, there's no natural light. There's no off, there's no on. These are things that are deepening these neural pathways and these grooves in our brains so that we come back for more and we come back for more and we come back for more. And these habits shape us. They shape us into a kind of person. Uh, I shared this before with a group of guys. Tony Reinke made a list a few years ago of the ways that he sees his phone shaping him. I should say deforming him, not forming him, but deforming him. Uh, he finds himself more distractive. He distracted. He finds himself uh, more in touch with flesh and blood human beings. He sees himself as approval hungry with the likes uh, and, the, and, the, and the lack of likes that he has on his posts. Maybe the inability to follow long flows of thought, uh, how we stage our lives more and more uh, in front of others. We, we sort of are able to block out real life and local life for bigger things. Uh, we drown out information that we don't know how to interpret. Uh, we're information overload. That we, so we're, we're, we have lots of info, but not much wisdom. Uh, we have a big fear of missing out. Uh, we become harsh. We say things we wouldn't say before an image bearer, for, of, uh, before a real live image bearer um, online that we wouldn't say in person and so on. And my point here is that let's uh, get rid of our phones. My point is to pay attention to what the phone is doing, the habits that are deepening and, and ingraining into our souls and into our minds, which then changes us into a type of person. The habits matter. So take an inventory, take stock 
in how you spend your day. This is just our phones. But you can ask questions about most of your life, how you wake up, how you go to bed. See, if there's no neutral ground, we should do an inventory of our daily actions. And we should ask, is this activity forming us into the kind of person that looks like Jesus? Or is it deforming us into the mold of this world, which is what Paul is warning us against? And so what's the alternative to this mold, to this worldly life? Well, look again at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your uh, spiritual worship. Or if you look at the footnote, which is your rational service or your fitting service. And I want to talk about that in a minute. And then he goes on. Do not be conformed to this world. What's the alternative? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul is describing here a life of worship, what I'll call worshipful ruts, opposed to worldly ruts. How can we remove ourselves out of the wagon trails of worldly ruts and find ourselves in these more life-giving, deep grooves of life and of worship and of love? A couple things. First, Worshipful ruts require God's mercy. Uh, To dig deep trenches of worship, we need God's mercy. We need it. That's why verse 1 says, therefore, by the mercies of God. Uh, This can be missed. It can be missed as a throwaway phrase. But don't miss what Paul's doing. He's saying the entire foundation of a life of worship is the preemptive mercy of God. How God's mercy is... Uh, goes before you, saves you, rescues you. Everything good in Romans 1 through Romans 11. Everything good. And we could go on and on about these good things. Our acceptance before the Holy God. Our forgiveness of our sins. Our adoption into God's family. Our union with Jesus so that when when God looks on Jesus uh, with, with uh, belovedness, He looks at us with belovedness. All these amazing things. The lack of condemnation that It no longer falls on us because Jesus took it in love. These kinds of amazing things are uh, under the umbrella of God's mercies. And Paul is saying that uh, we cannot live a life of gratitude and worship and we cannot cultivate habits of worship in our life if we don't first receive the mercy of God. That means that God rescued us when we were in the patterns of this world, rebellious against him. That was his mercy to us. And when our hearts are melted by that, we become plastic. We become, uh, uh, we become shapeable by God himself. So we need the mercy of God. Dr. Leonard Matheson, who's a neuro-rehabilitationist, <laughs> that's a mouthful, uh, and a psychologist and a Christian says this, quote, It's not a coincidence that our brain prospers with trustworthy love. And develops poorly without trustworthy love. Many studies of the brains of neglected or abused children demonstrate this. And numerous studies of rehabilitation from serious addiction demonstrate that trustworthy love is the key ingredient. Romans 1 through 11 is an airtight logical argument and demonstration that God's love for his people 
is trustworthy. There is no condemnation. You are adopted into his family. There's nothing you can do to get kicked out of God's family if you're in Jesus. He is our older brother. He is our savior. This place of trustworthy love is where we stand. And it's where we begin to be shaped or to be renewed. Worshipful ruts require mercy. Number two, worshipful ruts require surrender. To dig deep trenches of worship, we need to surrender. Now, this isn't to earn our salvation, but it's in response to God's salvation, to his mercies. He says, in view of God's mercies, present yourself. So it's not present yourself so that you receive God's mercies. It's the other way around. You've received his mercy. You have everything you need. Now, therefore, surrender your life uh, to him. In verse 1, it says, present your bodies as a what? As a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your fitting worship. Like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we lay everything down. Except when we do this, unlike the animals, we don't die. We come alive. We become more and more alive. We are living sacrifices. Jesus laid down his life for our sake And he was risen again so that we can lay down our lives on a daily, hourly, weekly, minute-by-minute basis and experience resurrection life as we do so. True life is surrender. Worshipful reds require your body, thirdly. Notice what we present as our act of worship. Paul says, our bodies. Notably, he doesn't say our spirits or our hearts. He says, our bodies. And as I said earlier, our translation doesn't really help us here because the word translated spiritual in our text is literally our true and proper worship. And so here we see again the mind-body division that we like to separate is, is just profoundly unbiblical. Sure, we worship God with our minds, that's verse 2, but that kind of makes our point because our minds is part of our bodies. It doesn't go against our bodies. Our mind is part of our bodies. God made our bodies. He redeems our bodies. We will, for eternity, if we're in Christ, we will have resurrection bodies in this new heavens and new earth. And so we, in turn, starting now, starting today, worship God with our bodies. This means how we sleep, how we eat. And yes, our daily habits get mapped out and entrenched in our bodies, and this matters as our act of worship. It matters. And Paul's not just reserving our worship to Sunday morning, but he's saying all of life is worship. All of life is surrender. All of life is a presentation of our full bodies before God. It's why what we do with our bodies, not just on Sunday in worship, but in all of life, deeply matter. This is our holy and acceptable act of worship. All of who we are, all of life, all the time. And then I would say, fourthly, worship breaths require God the Spirit. Notice uh, that Paul says, be transformed, be transformed. That too is the passive voice. Uh, sometimes that's called the divine passive because God is the implied actor here. Uh, God is doing the transforming. Uh, so holy habits are not something that we cultivate on our own as God sort of watches on the stands or watches it kind of hovers over our shoulder. Um, No, God is actually at work in you, transforming you. I love how N.T. Wright says it. He says, imagine you're trying to learn and practice a Bach piece on the piano. 
We don't practice this Bach piece as if um, Bach is sort of distant from us, watching us, and we're trying to play what he wrote. The Christian picture here is imagining that Bach is actually inside of you. Now, that's the, that's the analogy. It's, it's with God, though. We, 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 have, we are told in Scripture that Jesus Christ is in us and that we are united to Jesus. And so that when we put on these holy habits, we are actually becoming who we truly are in Jesus. Wright's images, it's as if we're practicing Bach with Bach inside of us. We're becoming who we truly are as we practice out what it is that he's calling us to. See, as one scholar, Douglas Moo, puts it, God has given us his spirit who is working to change our hearts and our minds from within. This isn't an outside in. When we're talking about habits and practices in the Christian life, it's not an outside in effort so much as it's an inside out effort. As we set patterns down, new wagon tracks of faithfulness, we become our true selves in Jesus. We're not doing something alien to our true nature in Christ. We're going with the grain of who we are now in Jesus. And then lastly, worshipful ruts result in renewal. Paul says in verse 2, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the word discern here is to approve or to uh, uncover its true quality. Uh, in the words of theologian Michael Bird, quote, to discover personally and experientially that God's ways, his will, his pathways, his rights that he set out for you are best. Are best. It's learning and it's believing and it's experientially knowing that God's will, God's ways, God's ruts are best. See, this is our biggest problem in life. That we don't trust that God's ways are best. That's our biggest problem in life. And it's a carryover from um, when we weren't uh, rescued by Jesus. Louis Giglio, he has this great analogy about being um, on an NBA basketball team and then being transferred overnight to a new NBA basketball team. You were playing and learning this playbook for so many years, and then suddenly you're being asked to play another playbook. There are sort of pathways and grooves that are, that are sort of ingrained over here that are getting hard to unpack over here so that when your point guard plays, calls out two, you instinctively think of what two was on your former team, not what two is on your new team. And that happens to us when we become believers. We have these, these sort of networks that are deeply ingrained, and, and God the Spirit is changing those. But we need to be aware that this takes time. This is called sanctification. And one of the problems is that we think that the old playbook is better than the new playbook. But what happens is, as we are renewed by God, we start to see that this playbook is better. God's ways are better. They're better. And so what we need is a renovation, a new way of looking at the world. And that's what he offers. It's a promise here that we will discern and we will see that God's ways are actually what he says they are. Good. I've been trying to become a good cook for about five to six years now. Um, I read cookbooks for fun. I think they're fun to read. I love fire. I love knives. I love transforming raw ingredients into something tasty. Um, I even like the introverted time where you get to just sort of like zone out while you cook. 
Um, and all of these things make me want to become a better cook. And every time I bring something out for, let's say, dinner, four-fifths of my family love it. But there's one person in particular who is a little bit standoffish. It's my five-year-old. In fact, oftentimes the best meals I've ever made, he doesn't like. He doesn't have a taste for it. <laughs> he would much prefer Craft mac and cheese, if I'm honest. Um, and that's essentially what an unformed Christian life is like. Our taste buds are off. We don't prefer the ways of God. We don't prefer the ways of Jesus. Um, but there's this amazing promise in this passage that God is renewing our taste buds, giving us new pathways in our body that, we, that makes us not despise, but actually desire the things of God. See, everybody is in a rut. It's just the way God made us. The question is, are they worldly ruts or worshipful ruts? And God is inviting you this morning to start paying attention to the ruts that are harming you, that belong to this order, and to start finding and discovering and deepening the ruts that bring life, that belong to the resurrection. What Jesus is inviting to you this morning. And so just a few reflections as we close that might be more practical for you. Number one, just respect habits. Respect the power of habits in the Christian life. I hope this passage and this sermon will at least help you respect this kind of role that habits have in your life. I think there are often two mistakes that we make in the church when it comes to habits in the Christian life. One is to give them way too much credit, um, and we kind of force God out of the equation. And all we do is we sort of think that we're a bag of chemicals, and if we just do these right things, we ingrain the neural pathways, and then we're, we're living the best life. And that sort of forces God out of the picture. So we give the habits too much credit. On the other hand, we can go the other route, and we don't give them enough credit. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis, who said these are the two dangers that we give uh, to uh, demons. We either give them too much credit, or we don't give them any credit in the life of the Christian. Well, the same can be said about habits. Um, look, we should notice how God has designed our bodies to react and to respond to worshipful habits. The power of habits and the power of God are meant to be married not divorced. And so this is just an opportunity for you to respect on that, to respect that. I think number two, if habits are powerful in our life, then let's make sure our habits are worshipful. It turns out there's a word for worshipful habits that I've been skirting around this entire message. The word is liturgy, okay? Liturgy means work of the people or the practices of the people. And it means that uh, what everything that we do, especially on Sunday in worship, um, has the potential to form deep grooves into our uh, minds and hearts and bodies, which is why we at Hope try to build liturgies with great care. You see... Even a non-liturgical church is a liturgy. It's a way of approaching God. It's a way of approaching the scriptures. It's a way of approaching the world. And we just want to pay attention to what it is that we're doing as we gather as God's people uniquely. So that's one thing. But what about Monday through Saturday? Heck, even the rest of Sunday, we should pay attention to our daily liturgies. These sort of daily habits that we get into. And we should think about, is this life-giving to God's glory, or is this life-taking? Some have called this uh, building a common rule for your life. I could talk more about that later. Some traditions have a morning and evening prayer, or even more than that, five, five times of prayer. Um, the point is, we should intentionally build 
architecture in our life, worshipful habits in our daily lives um, that shape us into certain kinds of people that God would have us. This isn't unthinking Christianity. It's actually quite wise. Uh, Steve Jobs famously uh, wore the same outfit every day as a habit. Why? So that he could give his energy to his job. One pastor, David Mathis, suggests that daily liturgies are like wearing, in a way, the same clothes every day. It means that you can release your energies into loving God and loving neighbor. It's just like one less decision you have to make when you have these patterns ingrained into your life that are life-giving. I want to suggest doing another thing. Do hard things. Do hard things in your life. Neuroscientists talk about how rehabilitation happens when we engage in what they call a just-right challenge. A just right challenge. Again, Dr. Leonard Matheson, he says this is when, quote, the demands of a meaningful test slightly exceed ability, harnessing neuroplasticity or change. Others have called this doing hard things. So like lifting weights, if you just do an just right challenge when you have uh, weights in the gym, you get stronger incrementally. It's just how God made us. And the same can be true with our walk with God. Paul says, for this I struggle, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So there's a marriage here between the strength and the power of God and, and doing just right challenges in the life of the Christian. Paul says, whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Again, a just right challenge. I think Paul's missionary journey is qualified. When we go out, we take a step of faith, when we do a just right challenge, when we're stretched, it's an amazing opportunity for God uh, to grow us. Remember, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to habit. Grace is opposed to merit. So hope as a church, we're really going to lean into this. We want to be a church that cultivates not only meaningful liturgy on Sundays, and we want to do that better Um, but also all throughout our lives. We want to be offering resources, pointing people to resources, and even producing our own resources in these ways moving forward, as we already have with our spiritual uh, formation practices. Pastor David Mathis compares the cultivation of habit in the Christian life to Zacchaeus climbing a tree in order to see Jesus. It was hard work climbing the tree. But it put Zacchaeus in the pathway of Jesus. And that's what we want to be as a church. We call ourselves Matthew's house often. We could call ourselves, in this respect, Zach's tree. Zach's tree. It's amazing. Um, if we climb the tree, if we, the, the, this, the disciplines or the habits that we can form uh, by grace in order to see Jesus, we will be growing in holistic growth as a church. It's amazing if you were to look at the pictures on my phone of the snowfield on the mountain pass, uh, you will see that deeply entrenched snow boot path that was dangerous. But if you look close enough, you'll see there were a few alternative boot trails that some people tried to make. Someone took a different, safer route. And all it would take is some more people to start taking that route to be on that safer route. And see, the same is true for you. You are not forever entrenched in the sin patterns. You're not forever entrenched in the dangerous routes. God is showing us a better way. And so let's just pray for that now. Lord, would you indeed 
um, create in us uh, new pathways of life. And show us how to better cultivate that into our life. We, we pray that you would indeed transform us and transform our minds so that we are no longer conforming by default to the deadening ways of this world, but instead that we are experiencing the deep, deep, abundant life that you offer in your resurrection. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.